I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us this morning, you received in your program a blue and white connection card. So if you just kind of fill that out, name, email, phone number, and just you can drop that in the offering bag as it goes by later. Today, uh, we're going to be in the book of Leviticus, and we've been going through a series called God's Story. And we've gone through Genesis, uh, Exodus, and now we're to everyone's favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus. <laughs> this, is, this is a book that it highlights God's holiness, um, but it's a book that's highly misunderstood. It's a book that a lot of people don't know uh, about, really. Um, and, and what ends up happening is we pull verses from it and things like that. For instance, let me read to you. This is Leviticus 13. And you don't have this, Mindy, so don't worry about this. Leviticus 13.40 says, If a man's hair falls out of his head, he's bald. He is clean. If a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness of the forehead. He is clean. <laughs> That's what I'm preaching out of this morning. I'm just kidding. That'd be something Daniel would preach out of. <laughs> so... <laughs> He's clean. Um, so that's, that's like a verse out of Leviticus. Um, like what do we do with that verse, right? But Leviticus is a unique book because it's, it's actually set up in a very unique way. Um, that, so look at, this, look at this frame. So right here, you see that the, the book is, I posted this video out on, on Facebook earlier this week. But the book is all about ritual priesthood and purity. And go into it a little bit more. You see the chapter breakdown? And then rituals on the ends, priesthoods there, purity there, and then you can stop it. And then the, that middle section is left, verses uh, chapters 16 and 17. But you see the book is, is patterned on a certain way. You have rituals of, of Israel, and then that includes like feasts and celebrations, things like that. Uh, and then specific priesthood chapters on what the priest is supposed to do. And then you have this, these purity chapters and uh, the, the baldness thing is found in the, purity, in the purity chapters. But there's all kinds of things in there. And then 16 and 17 are about the Day of Atonement, which is a huge day. And it happened once a year in Israel's calendar. And it was to um, make recompense and a sacrifice for the forgiveness of all the sins of Israel throughout the year. Okay, so all of that, that's, that's all I'm doing with the video. All of that is cool, yeah, you're like, okay, whatever. Um, how does this fit into God's story? So God has been crafting a story we've, we've shown from the very beginning to call a people out for his purposes to live on a kingdom mission. Right, that is defined by a king. We talked about that last week, and and these people he is putting together right now. And Leviticus is not a standalone book. Like we can't look at Leviticus and just um, interpret it on itself by itself. We have to do it in the first five books of the Bible. Like actually, the first five books of the Bible, guys, are one whole book. We've just as you put it in there, we just put it into separate books. They're actually one, one entire book. They're supposed to be read that way. Um, and then what's more is we can't take Leviticus and not interpret it in light of the whole Old Testament or the whole Bible. 
Because what happens when we just interpret Leviticus for Leviticus is, well, and this is, you see how this is unwise. It's, uh, but we'll pull out verses on homosexuality. And we'll say, Leviticus says this on homosexuality. And we'll say, Leviticus says this about baldness. Leviticus says this about tattoos. Leviticus says this about not eating pigs. And then we say, what do we do with that? Um, but when we interpret these issues in light of the whole counsel of God, then in light of the whole entirety of the scriptures, then we understand what God says on homosexuality. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna touch that today. Um, but if you wanna, if you wanna know what we believe on that, we have a sermon on that from last year. You can go online. Um, but we don't get it just from Leviticus. We get it from the entirety of the scriptures. And then also you can talk to Minsu. I mean, he's our church partners with Deep Waters, which is a tremendous organization that um, anything Minsu, anything this organization puts forth, we believe in. So um, we I talked to Minsu before you talked to me or Daniel. Um, but you can talk to us too. Uh, tattoos. I have really no theological insight to give you guys on tattoos. <laughs> um, I have some funny stories that I can give you on tattoos, but I have no theological insight. Leviticus says don't do it, but Leviticus, God is crafting a specific people for a specific time for a specific mission. Okay? And so and we're going to talk about that later. Pigs. Like, there's a whole list of unclean animals and clean animals in Leviticus. Like, what do we do with that? As Christians today, as the church today, what do we do with that list? It has like birds on there, it has like shellfish, and it has pigs. I mean, barbecue pork is on there. Roast pork, sausage, bacon, maple bacon ice cream, <laughs> bratwurst. Like, listen to your stomach right now. <laughs> you, you want those foods. Um, ask Curtis about this. He has a working theory that bacon makes everything better. Um, but, <laughs> it, it's from, yeah. actually, you can go to Acts 10. And so if we just took that section of Leviticus and said, oh, we can't eat any of these things, um, then uh, that would be severely misinterpreted. Because when we go to Acts 10, uh, Peter has this vision that God is, is bringing down a blanket of all these animals, clean and unclean. And he says to Peter, take and eat for what I've, or, or for what, uh, for I've made what's clean, clean what's, what's unclean. And so um, we have to interpret these things in, in light of the entire, entirety of the scriptures. That's, that's the key point I want you guys to see there. So God is crafting a people here. He is, he's calling people who have come out of slavery and they've come through Exodus. And what's, what's really cool is, you know, I talked about this last week. <coughs> that doesn't help at all when I cover. Uh, I talked about this last week. In, in Exodus, this book is really, it's about a couple things. Moses develops as a leader, but really Moses is showing us what a personal relationship with God is like. In Exodus 3, God reveals who he is. God reveals who he is personally. He gives his personal name, which is Yahweh. And he says, this is who I am. This is who you should tell people, my people, who I am. And they're going to follow me because I, the name is I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. And 
Moses has this like burning bush encounter with God, right? In Exodus, where he reveals his personal name. And then Moses goes into this. We see him struggling with this relationship. Moses doesn't do it well at the beginning. He doesn't do it perfectly. He struggles with this relationship with God. He's figuring out how to hear God, how to trust God, how to obey God. And then Exodus 33 happens. And you see Moses saying, God, if you're not going with me, I'm not going. If your presence isn't going before us, don't even bother sending us there. And you see this like development into his relationship with God. And then Exodus 34, Moses is in the very presence of God. And when he comes down from the mountain, his face is brilliant. It's shining. It's, it's, he's seen God's glory. And for the rest of his life, Moses has to wear a veil because he freaks people out because his face just glows because he has been with God. That's what an encounter of God does. It changes us. It changed Moses physically, spiritually, emotionally. It transformed him. And people saw it. And then at the end of Exodus, the book ends with not just Moses having this personal relationship, but it says that everybody in the camp of Israel can see the light and the glory of the Lord from wherever they are. And so everybody has access to this personal relationship with God. And so when Leviticus happens, it happens right after that. And what they've done is they've built the tabernacle, which is God's meeting place. It's his dwelling place. It's where he, he, his presence comes to his people. It's right in the middle of camp. And they've just constructed it. They've just erected it. They've just put everything in it. And then Leviticus comes on the scene. Moses writes Leviticus to say, this is what we do with that. This is what we do with God's glory. Because he has to teach them, like, we're to be a distinct people that's going to go into the promised land in a couple books that Daniel will hit in the next couple of weeks. We're going to go into this land, and we have to show them something different, to show them God's glory. And so Leviticus is a book of God crafting a holy people that's set apart from all the nations around them for a specific purpose there. And uh, God is really creating this vehicle of redemption for the nations, okay? So it's not the rituals, you know, it's not the priesthood, it's not the purity laws that make the people holy, though. Like, a lot of times we see that in Leviticus, but that's not what makes the people holy. It's actually the power and the presence of God that makes them holy, okay? And that's why uh, we read that in those two verses. We see uh, Aaron and Moses come out and they bless the people. Aaron has just offered sin offerings. And they come out and they bless the people. The glory of the Lord appears to the people. And then what happens? They fall on their faces and they shout before the Lord. Because he, the fire comes out and consumes the offerings. And it's the power and the presence of God that makes them a holy people. So for the last two weeks, we've been talking a lot about... Um, I've been talking really to, to both both Christians and people who consider themselves non-Christians, people who, are, who don't know really what to do with, with Christianity and God and, and the faith. This week, um, if, you are a, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ in here this morning, um, what I want you to hear this morning is how the church is supposed to be. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. What God's people looks like and what it should look like because you came in here this morning with some sort of perception on what the church is you know past experience media 
family um, background, you know, or who God is, what you've what you've seen in the world, you know. I mean, we can go on and on. But you came in here with some sort of um, presupposition or perception on who God is and and what the church is. Uh, this morning, I really want to talk about what the church is supposed to be, you know, uh, a, a vessel for the power and presence of God. And so if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus in here, I want you to really grasp that this morning. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, this, this, uh, I want you to hear what we're supposed to be this morning as the church, what Trinity Life Church is supposed to represent in this city. I want you to hear that. Um, but I also want you to realize that, that this isn't just for you. The essence of our faith is it's for others. Essence of our faith is we we do the things that we do. We worship the way we worship for God and for others. That God uses us for our city. I guess not. We in the West for too long we made our salvation and our redemption uh, individual. Last week you talked about our faith isn't an individual faith. It's a corporate faith. We're part of something much bigger than ourselves. Yes, Jesus came and He died for you. Yes, Jesus came and he forgave your sins. But it wasn't for you to sit there by yourself. It was for you to join a body of Christ to be a people who lives on kingdom mission for his glory. To be to manifest the power of God in the presence of God. So, how's my voice doing? <laughs> I feel like it's going out. Um, so, if you look at Aaron here, he's, he's a... The, the people here, and Aaron specifically, he's this vessel for God's redemption because he offers these sacrifices. It says burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings. He goes and offers these on behalf of the people. And God's given him the power to do this. God's given him uh, the ability to be a conduit for God's message of redemption. That was the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes, he's made us the priests. Now, God's original intention, if you go back to Exodus, he asked the people to come forward, and the people get scared. And when they go to the mountain, and they say, hey, Moses, you just go up. And that's like the beginning of the priesthood. And, um, but today, uh, the New Testament says, Paul says, that we are the priesthood. We're the priesthood of believers. So we have this power. As the church, we have this same power that God has given Aaron here to be a conduit for God's redemption and his purposes. We are this vehicle of redemption to the nations. Like, this, this is pretty, this might scare you, but we're the hope of the world. Like, we're the hope of our city, the church is. Like, how, how are we doing, guys? We're, we're the hope here. And this may seem strange to those of you who don't follow Jesus uh, because of what you see in the church. Because um, the church is broken, right? The church is full of broken people. The church isn't perfect. How can an imperfect uh, entity be the hope of the world? How can we be the hope? How can we be the light when, when we're so broken? But that's the beauty of the gospel, right? For those of you guys who follow Jesus, you know that's the beauty of the gospel. That at some point in your life, you recognized that you were broken, that you were sinful, that you couldn't do it on your own, that you're full of fears and failures. And Jesus said, I'm rescuing you from all those things. And I'm inviting you into my bride, who is perfect not because of the way we act, but who is perfect because of what I've done. 
because of the righteousness that I've clothed you in. And that's the church, guys. It's not perfect, not perfect at all, but we have a perfect savior. We have a perfect redeemer. We have someone who, who has done what we, what we couldn't do for ourselves. He's done it for us. So God meant us to be vessels of redemption. This is where I'm going to talk to you individually. But too many of us are vessels for other things. Like what, are you, what are you a vessel for? What are you a conduit for to others? If we're supposed to be a conduit for redemption, for hope... What are you actually a conduit for to others, to our city, to your neighbors, to, to your family, to your friends? Are you offering redemption or are you offering condemnation? Are you offering grace and forgiveness or are you offering judgment? Are you offering mercy? Are you offering uh, patience or do you offer punishment? And what are, you, what are you a conduit for? What is the church a conduit for? What are you carrying around? Like, what are you putting inside you? Are you a vessel of past hurt? And is that what you put forward in your relationships, just past hurt all the time? Are you a vessel for your sin? Are you a vessel for lust? Are you a vessel for depression and anxiety and fear and these things that detract from, from who God wants us to be in uh, our identity in Him? Are you a vessel for... Uh, anger. I mean, what what are you a vessel for? That's what I want you to ask this morning. Moses and Aaron bless the people later on, and God's given them the ability. He's given us the ability to bless others with good things. I mean, that's that's what blessing is. It's not cursing is when we give other people bad things, but blessing we give people good things. And right before this. Moses and Aaron can only do this because they've consecrated themselves. Something has happened to them, inside them. And they can only give what they've already received. That's the beauty of the Christian faith, guys. We can only give grace when we've received grace. And perhaps you don't give grace because you haven't fully received grace. Perhaps you don't know how to give forgiveness because you haven't realized God's full forgiveness. Perhaps you don't give love because you don't realize the full extent of the Father's love for us. But God gives those things freely to us. And all we got to do is receive them. And then guess what? We get to give them to other people. We get to give them love. And we, give the, and we get to give them grace and forgiveness because God has given those things to us. And so when you fully realize um, your potential in Christ and your relationship with the Father, it's then that you're going to be such a, such a beautiful vessel for all of those things. Sometimes our lives are just consumed with other things. And we don't become a vessel for, for what's good. And we end up cursing people instead of blessing people. But the Spirit, as He works in us, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit who dwells in you. And if, when He works in us, the Bible says He produces certain things. He produces love and joy. He produces peace and patience. He produces kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. These are the things that the Apostle Paul says are the fruit 
of what Jesus does in our lives, the Spirit of Christ. Are those things you're producing? Because there's a second list that he gives. And he says, if your life doesn't look like that, then it probably looks like the works of the flesh. Because the flesh, our sinful desires and, and those things, they produce something else in us. They produce enmity and strife. They produce um, uh, immorality and impurity and sexual immorality and anger. They produce all these things, rivalry, division, envy, greed. And he says, does your life look like this? Does it look like this? Is the spirit producing something in you or is the flesh producing something in you? When I was, uh, when I was a youth pastor, I used to be a youth pastor, um, I was like, I was the fun youth pastor. Um, I was probably too fun. Like I, I wanted to be their friends and just have a good time. I was a, I was a um, theology professor at the same time. So I had like academia over here and I wanted to leave that there and then I wanted to go and have fun with, with the youth. Um, but when I was a youth pastor, I had one of my big goals. This was a rural church. So a lot of my youth, um, their worldview was pretty small um, just because of how they grew up and where they grew up and where they ventured. They were within a few kilometer radius. They never left home. Um, and so just being there, when Missy and I were there, we were just, we were the city folk. Like, we were just different from, from them. And one of my goals was to broaden their worldview as youth, to really pour into them and, and this next generation and, and just to take their worldview and make it bigger. And what I mean by that is just having them see the world differently. Like they're consumed with hunting and fishing and four-wheeling. Those things aren't bad. That's all they knew. And that's it. They didn't know anything outside of that. And so I uh, wanted to get them away from just certain things and see the world for what it was. So as a youth pastor, they, they had me take them on a trip every year, every summer. And I was like, if they're going to have me take them on a trip every year, I'm going to make it somewhere where they can broaden their worldview. So first year, we went to inner city Philadelphia, um, West Philadelphia. Don't start singing the song. <laughs> I see some of you guys lipping it, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was, it was bad. Uh, they'd never been inner city in, in a city like that before. They'd never been that far north in the U.S. before. So um, this was a southern rural church. And so I take them there. They're cleaning out this playground one day, and they find a gun. They're like, oh, my gosh, what do you do with this gun? Um, and they find, like, needles, and um, they, we saw a drug deal. They almost got mugged, uh, all these things. Like, um, and I was actually glad for those things. Like, it brought in their worldview. It showed them there's something else outside of um, their little segment of society, that life isn't as pretty as they made it out to be. And so uh, we went to West Philadelphia. Um, and the next year, I actually brought them to Toronto, and we served in Regent Park. And this was right after God had called me to to Toronto. And I was like, I'm going to take my youth there. And someone told me before we moved to Toronto, before we came to Toronto on this trip, he said, um, he said, he was from Toronto. He's like, you don't want to go to Regent Park. 
He's like, it's it's bad, you know, gangs, violence. You don't want to go there. Um, a lot of poor and immigrants. And I was like, that's where Jesus would be. So I'm going to take my youth there. So we went there and we saw how much cleaner and nicer and safer Canada was. <laughs> I was like, man, Regent Park, this is like a walk in the park like, compared to West Philadelphia or Detroit, right? Um, I was like, yeah, this is, we didn't feel in danger at all. Like, it was completely safe. Um, but again, so it was a new country. Like, they'd never been in a different country. And so they came to Canada, and they just brought in the worldview, but we drove. Next year, it took them to San Francisco. And that was huge because it was their, none of them had ever flown on an airplane before. And so it was all the way across. We were in North Carolina, so all the way on the other side of the country. And the youth were super excited because they're going to get a flight on an airplane, all this stuff. The parents, though, that's when the claws came out. The parents hated me. They hated the idea, and they took it out on me because um, their kids were going to get on an airplane and fly on the other side of the country. And uh, one morning, I came into church, and one of the parents, one of the moms, pulled me aside, and she said, um, and she was the one who was our greatest support. So it was a shock coming from her. She said, you're making a huge mistake um, uh, in doing this. And she knew, like she'd walked alongside us in their whole ministry. Um, so she knew why we were doing this. And we'd actually all agreed to do it. I didn't make a unilateral decision. Like I talked to the parents about this beforehand. We all agreed on this. But it started to set in as it got closer. And she said, you're making a huge mistake. <laughs> I should have said, you made the mistake, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, uh, she said, I can't let my daughter go on this trip. And she starts yelling at me. And she's like, you don't understand how it is. She's like, you're not a father. I was a father, but that point is moot, I guess. Um, I did have a child at that point. Uh, but she said, you're not a father, so you don't under understand. Uh, she is my life, and you are taking my life on that airplane to the other side of the country. I put my hand on their shoulder and I said, I'm sorry that you think she's your life. I God gave her to you to release her, to live a life in him. And it like shocked her. <laughs> um, she was angry. And then two weeks later, she came up and she said, that's the best thing I could have said to her. But you see, all these sacrifices in the Old Testament, they cause a lot of bloodshed. Like, all, like they did all these sacrifices and they had to do them over and over because they just kept on sinning. And in, in Leviticus 17, God says to Moses, the reason you're doing this, he's like, Moses, I know this is crazy. Like, you're killing goats and pigeons and you know, lambs and bulls and rams and all this stuff. Um, and it's very bloody. Like they'd had to sprinkle blood on the altar. They'd had to pour blood out. They'd have to, it's, I, I, I read Leviticus this week and I was like, man, the priests, they got like blood on their hands all the time. And God says to them in Leviticus 17, he says, this is because life is in the blood that the blood has a life in it. And that's why Jesus, we see later, has to die. That's why his blood 
had to be shed on our behalf because he offered the perfect sacrifice to give his blood, to give his life. And so as a Christian, you don't only have the life of Christ, he's given you his life, but your life is actually hidden in Christ. His blood flows through your veins. Like his life is in you. His blood has cleansed you. It's consecrated you. It's made you holy. And so when something else is your life, like your child, your career, your uh, relationship with a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, mom, dad, family, when something else is your life, it quenches the power of God in your life. And you only have access to the power of God through the lifeblood of God, through Jesus Christ. But we also have access to the presence of God. You know, I talked about the tabernacle earlier. Moses and Aaron, they, they come out of the tabernacle uh, right before these verses. Um, they come out of the tabernacle because they've just done the offerings. And then they bless the people. God, the glory of God appears the offerings are consumed with fire. Can you imagine? Let's just picture this. We kind of read over Leviticus or, or things in the Bible. But just picture this. Like, picture Daniel and I coming out of the tabernacle and, and just praying a blessing. And, and then all of a sudden, the offerings, uh, this fire just comes out of nowhere. This fire comes out of nowhere and just consumes the offerings. And then it disappears. But they see this light. They see this glory of God appear, this brilliant light. Can you imagine? Like, what would you do? Israel didn't know what to do. <laughs> they, they shouted, and then they fell on their faces. They're like, ah! <laughs> I mean, they, they had no idea what to do. They were just like, this is, this is crazy. We've never seen anything like this before. The glory of the Lord showed up. And that's, that's the presence of God. So let me show you some pictures. So um, here's a few pictures of just places of worship that Missy and I have visited around the world. So you know places, uh, this was 2009. So we look, do I look the same or do I look older? <laughs> yeah, you, I have more gray. So this was 2009. We're at Westminster Abbey. You know that places of worship around the world are some of the um, most popular tourist destinations. Just because of their beauty and their grandeur. That's flagship Anglican church. This is Sacre Coeur. Uh, it's the highest point. This is built on the highest point in Paris. Um, and so in, when you're in Paris, you can, you can see this from anywhere. You just see this tremendous, uh, I believe it's the Catholic church, yeah, Roman Catholic church built on the mountain. Uh, yeah, keep on going. Um, you guys know what this is? Anybody? This is where the Pope comes out, right there in the middle on that balcony. This is St. Peter's Basilica. Um, uh, it's tremendous. Look at, the, look at the people in the front or, or like in the back, uh, in the front of the building. Look how small they are. That's how massive St. Peter's Basilica is. And then you go inside and it's, it's glorious. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. Okay? Keep on going. Um, this is, it's a distorted picture, but this is a mosque in Tripoli, and they were building it in order to be the highest structure in the city. It looks like, a, it looks like really small right now, but um, if you look at it in the desert landscape, 
they're building it to be the highest structure in Tripoli because it's supposed to represent the glory of God. It's supposed to point to something. Okay, yeah, let's keep on going. This is Chichen Itza. Uh, this is Mayan religion. This is in Mexico. Uh, same, same idea here. Uh, there, this is a place of worship that they built in order to, to represent something, some sort of magnificence and glory. Um, this is, oh yeah, you can go, it's cool. This is Doi Sutep. This is in Thailand. Has anyone seen Rambo 3? So Rambo 3, I see some heads nodding. This is where Rambo is at the beginning of Rambo 3, where he's, he's like pounding the, the metal and stuff. So this is where he is. This is uh, on the top of a mountain. It's the highest, highest point in the city. You can see the sun glimmer off of the gold on a bright day um, on the mountain. It's, it's magnificent. It's, it's beautiful. And then um, this is the Metropolitan Cathedral, Roman Catholic, in Rio de Janeiro. Look at the stained glass on that. It goes into a cross at the top. The stained glass just, just goes all the way up. And it's, it's huge. Like, again, it looks kind of squished in this picture, but it's, it's extremely tall. Um, and it's just, again, the magnificence of God. I haven't been here. Uh, Daniel was in Istanbul a couple months ago. Did you see the Blue Mosque? This is a Blue Mosque. Everyone knows Hagia Sophia. This one is right next to it. Um, and this is the, the more magnificent one I've heard. Um, six minarets. Uh, just, just magnificent. Um, all coming to a point to point up to to the glory of God there. So these are all. I think that was the last one, right? These are all places of of worship. Um, <clears throat> these are all built to showcase God's glory, to point to something bigger. But really, that's all they can do, right? At the end of the day, they're just buildings. They're just structures. They're just pointing to God. They can't really encapsulate the beauty of God. They can't really communicate the entire grandeur of who God is. That's the best we can do as humans. The tabernacle was this way. Uh, the temple, after the tabernacle was built, was this way. It showed God, like it showed us something about God and who He was. But really, that's it, that's all a building could do was say, "Oh, that's." That's beautiful. That's that's awesome. Um, but have have you ever have you ever waited for something for such a long time, and then it was a letdown? Like have you ever just waited? Just think about this. Like, okay, I was at Wonderland, and there's a ride there. Like, has anyone been on the mountain? Like, in the mountain, the shooting game ride on the mountain. We waited, waited for like an hour and a half, and it was such a letdown. I was like, I would never go on that ride again. I just wasted an hour and a half of my life. Um, but there's some things that we wait for and wait for and wait for, and then it's just a big letdown. Have you waited for something for so long, and it was way better than you ever anticipated? I have. His name's Jesus. And that's how the Bible is constructed. This is, this is the God story. The entire scriptures are pointing to the Messiah. The entire scriptures take us on a journey from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And actually two-thirds of the Bible, the first two-thirds is pointing us to something. 
we're following this, this promise of a redeemer, of someone who's going to come and, and save us, and someone who's going to come and make up for our failures, someone who's going to come and, and show us a better way of life, show us the true way of life, someone who's going to come and restore the image of God that was put in us in Genesis 1 and that was distorted in us in Genesis 3. And the whole scriptures were waiting for that person. So if you start in Genesis and read, the reason why a lot of us don't like the Old Testament, the reason why a lot of us don't understand it, is because it's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of messing up. And it's a lot of uh, complexity. Because we don't know what we're waiting for yet. We're like, okay. And then we get impatient. Like, just waiting and waiting. And then if you read the Old Testament, like if you knew nothing about the New Testament, there's certain people that come along the scene, come on the scene. Uh, Abraham, Moses, David, these people. And you're like, oh, is this the guy? Is this the guy we're waiting for? And then they mess up. And you're like, oh, that's not the guy. Um, you know, Moses comes along on the scene. Uh, we think he's the guy, and then he can't even go into the promised land. We're like, oh, that's, that's not the guy. And then David comes on the scene, and he's a man after God's own heart. And then he commits adultery. And you're like, okay, he commits adultery. Like, that's, that's definitely forgivable. Um, it's not the worst thing I've heard. But then he murders her husband. <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, there's no turning back from that. Um, and you're like, he's, he's definitely not the guy. And then you're waiting, you're waiting. The prophets come, along, come, come on, and, and they're talking about this guy who's supposed to come, this Messiah. And we're just waiting the whole time. And then Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 4. And immediately, everything's different. Immediately, everything changes. Because he comes, he, he comes and he says, he doesn't say, hey guys, remember Leviticus? I told you you weren't supposed to eat that. And I told you you're supposed to sacrifice these things. And, you know, I told you, oh, that guy has a tattoo, so he's... No, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because I'm here now. Most of us read that and we're like, he's saying, repent. Now he's saying, guys, you can turn away from your, your way of life. The life that is killing you. The life that you think you want, but is actually destroying you. You can turn away from that. Because I'm here now. Like I'm fulfilling all these things that you've been waiting for. And all you got to do is turn and come to me because the kingdom is here. And then if you read Luke 5, I love Luke 5. He, there's get these guys fishing, right? Like Peter and, and those guys, they're, they're fishing out in the Sea of Galilee. I don't know why I'm doing this. Is this fishing? Like, it's net. I'm pulling in a net, okay? Okay. Um, I don't think they're like doing this. Um, but they're fishing, and they didn't catch anything all night. They didn't catch anything. And they come in, they're mending their nets. Jesus walks by, he's like strolls by on, on the shore. And he's like, hey guys, why don't you go back out? And they're like, probably thinking like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, he probably doesn't look like a fisherman. Um, I mean, Jesus was a carpenter, so he probably doesn't look like a fisherman. Um, and he's like, hey, why don't you go back out and throw your nets over there? And they're like, okay. They see something about this guy, so they go do it. And they go throw their nets in, and they haul in this massive load of fish. When they start hauling in, the nets start breaking. Other boats have to come alongside them to bring in the fish. 
It's, a, it's um, just an enormous amount of fish. And they come back to Jesus, and they just fall on their faces before him. You see the theme here? When the glory of the Lord shows up, people fall on their faces. And Jesus doesn't say, that's right, that's where you belong. He says no, and he lifts them up, and he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. Because I'm here now. And when I'm here, everything changes. I love Luke 5. And then John 4 happens. John 4 happens. There's this Samaritan woman. Samaria and Israel were like mortal enemies. So he goes to this well. There's a Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus walks up to her. And he's like, just starts talking to her. And his disciples are like, first of all, why is he talking to a woman? Like, a woman by himself, like that just wasn't acceptable. Um, and then why is he talking to a Samaritan woman? And then why is he talking to that Samaritan woman? Because that one is the one who's had uh, like there was seven husbands, um, and she's a, she's and the guy she's with now she's not even married to. Like she's lived a full life of sin. And they're like, why is Jesus? He's he's the Son of God. Why is he talking to that person? And Jesus says to her, there's going to come a time when we don't worship at this temple. We don't worship at that temple. And the time is here where we just worship in spirit and in truth. And all you have to do is believe and you're forgiven. And he's ushering in this new age in spirit and in truth. And he's, he's not condemning her. And Jesus says these rituals that, that you guys have been doing, they're no longer needed because I fulfill them all. And these sacrifices that you guys have been doing, they're no longer needed because I am the perfect sacrifice. And all I have to do it is one time. And Hebrews actually goes on and says that the bulls of blood and goats, those are meaningless. Like they don't actually cover sin. You know, they don't actually, like, we can't wash ourselves with the blood of animals. He's like, it was just a shadow of the substance that was to come. And that's Jesus. It was all to point us to Jesus. And to say, when he dies on a cross, when he dies for us, we understand it in light of that. Because, to be honest, a man dying 2,000 years ago and... Us trusting in that for forgiveness of sin sounds pretty ludicrous, right? Unless you understand it in the whole story, this whole God story of the scriptures. That makes perfect sense. But if you just hear someone dying for you, you're like, how could that affect me today? That was 2,000 years ago. But when we understand Jesus in the context of scripture and what he's done for us, it changes everything. And he says, even the temple is obsolete because now the church, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the conduit for the presence of God. You bring the presence of God in this place. Like this is a beautiful building. Like you walk in from the front, it's got the dual staircases, those things. But there's nothing special about this place. What makes it special is when the people of God gather. And the presence of God isn't just contained by these four walls. It goes out from here because it's the presence of God. It's not the presence of us. But when his people are gathered, that's when his presence 
is here and is uh, magnified among us. And so, you guys have waited for something, you know? You, you may be in this situation where you waited for something all of your life. You waited for someone to, or something, I don't know, to take away fears, to take away failures, to heal brokenness, to mend your past. You've waited for, for something to give you true identity, purpose, destiny. And Jesus says, I'm here now. Jesus says, everything changes now. And our response to that should be shouting out to him and falling on our faces before him. And what's amazing is he never keeps us there. He says, don't be afraid. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. And now we get to worship in spirit and in truth. And then he uses us for his kingdom purposes. And so if you aren't a follower of Jesus today, that's his invitation to you. That's what Jesus wants for you. If you're a follower of Jesus today, that's his invitation to you. That's what Jesus wants for you. Maybe you've forgotten that. That Jesus wants more for you than what your past says you are. Jesus wants more for you than what your sins define you as. Because you see, in the Father, we're already approved. We're already there, and he's given us garments of righteousness that are brilliant, that are white, that are untainted. And we can never taint those when we're in Jesus. And so we just get to live that, and we get to be conduits for the power and presence of God.